Life is tough for Ivan. He longed for the morning not to come, but the morning came as usual. I'm Roger, and this is Bookshook, and today I'm discussing the first half of February's book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, translated by Ralph Parker, published in 1953. So each month, I take a book, split it in two, and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. But please be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes. So please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to page 72 of one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. The paragraph begins, the shop was quiet. So as I say, life is very tough in the gulag. Quote, he longed for the morning not to come, but the morning came as usual. Shukov feels poorly at the beginning of the novel and he sleeps in only to be punished by the Tata for doing so. Shukov describes how footwear is allocated. Quote, no sense in getting your boots wet in the morning. Even if Shukov had dashed back to his hut, he wouldn't have found another pair to change into. During eight years' imprisonment, he had known various systems for allocating footwear. There had been times when he'd gone through the winter without Valenki at all, and they're the leather boots, and had to make a shift with bast sandals or a sort of galoshes made of scraps of motor tyres. Now, the footwear situation seemed better. In October, Shukov had received thanks to Pavlo, whom he trailed to the store, a pair of ordinary hard-working leather boots, big enough for a double thickness of footcloth. For a week, he went about as though he'd been given a birthday present, kicking his new heels. Then in December, the Valenki arrived, and oh, wasn't life wonderful. Now, Valenki are knee-length felt boots for winter wear. It's very interesting him saying, oh, wasn't life wonderful? What an irony. It seems like a terrible place to be. The narrator on the whole is very humorous in this diabolical situation. I wasn't expecting such a vivacious and upbeat narration. My mind was ready for something dour and grim, but this isn't like that at all. Now the guards call him a number 854. He is just a number. One of his teammates keeps breakfast for him and he eats it with a spoon that he fashioned out of aluminium wire. The breakfast sounds horrific. And he heads to the sick bay, quote, It's like this, I'm feeling sort of unwell, said Shukov shamefacedly, as if coveting something that didn't belong to him. What a lovely turn of phrase. Now, in this prison camp of hard labour, where perhaps bodily health is important to the authorities, he is made to feel shame. He is told to wait and he thinks about his appearance, how he hasn't bathed for over 10 days and that his next bath will be in three days' time. He reflects on the fact that the new doctor doesn't let patients stay in bed. Even they have to work. Quote, He invented jobs in and around the infirmary for all the patients who could stand on their feet, fencing the garden, laying paths, bringing soil to the flower beds, and in wintertime erecting snow barriers. Work, he said, was a first-rate medicine for any illness. Now, the close, omniscient narrator moves to the medical assistant, who was a writer, a literature student, with no medical training, arrested in his second year at university. His doctor boss, quote, 
wanted him to write when in prison what he'd been given no opportunity to write in freedom. Quite a touching little tale. And then we resume Shukov's close omniscient narration. His temperature is 37 degrees, not bad enough to be let off work. Quote, the cold stung. A murky fog wrapped itself round Shukov and made him cough painfully. The temperature out there was minus 27 degrees. Shukov's temperature was plus 37 degrees. The fight was on. He ran at a jog to his hut. The whole mustering ground was deserted. The camp looked empty. It was that brief moment of relaxation when, although everything had been decided, everyone is pretending to himself that there will be no march to work. The sentries sit in warm quarters, their sleepy heads propped against their rifles. It's not all milk and honey for them either, lounging on the watchtowers in such cold. The guards at the main gate tossed coal into the stove. The camp guards in their room smoked a last cigarette before searching the barracks. And the prisoners, now clad in all their rags, a cord round their waists, their faces bound from chin to eyes with bits of cloth against the cold, lay on their bunks with their boots on and waited, eyes shut, hearts a-quake, their team leader to yell, out you get. Now Shukov is given rations, bread and sugar, and he hides some in ingenious places, mattresses and a secret pocket. But why? Well, because, quote, food gulped down is no food at all. It's wasted. It gives you no feeling of fullness. There's a roll call and Shukov manages to get a drag on a cigarette from a teammate and it sates his hunger momentarily. They have to wear their undershirts to be searched by this awful man called Volkovoy, which means a wolf in Russian. He's the head of security. Quote, he was a wolf indeed and looked it. He was dark, tall, with a scowl, very quick in his movements. There was no hiding from him. At first, in 49, that's 1949, he'd been in the habit of carrying a whip of plaited leather as thick as his forearm. He was said to have used it for flogging in the cells or when the prisoners would be standing in a group near a hut at the evening count. He'd slink up from behind and lash out at someone's neck with a, why aren't you standing in line, trash? The men would dash away in a wave. Stung by the blow, his victim would put a hand to his neck and wipe away the blood, but he'd hold his tongue for fear of the cells. Now, for some reason, Volkovoy had stopped carrying his whip. So he used to carry a whip, but not anymore. We're not experiencing the very worst of a situation described, just like we aren't experiencing the worst weather, which can get up to minus 41 degrees. And there'll be more on that idea later. Now, the wolf, Volkovoy, puts Shukov's team colleague, Buinovsky, who's an ex-naval captain, imprisoned for taking a gift from an English naval admiral, for 10 days in the cells for complaining about being strip-searched in the cold. Quote, Shukov was in regulation dress. Come on, pour me as hard as you like. There's nothing but my soul in my chest. But they made a note that Cesar was wearing a flannel vest and that Buinovsky, it seemed, had put on a waistcoat or a cummerbund or something. Buinovsky, who'd been in the camp less than three months, protested. He couldn't get rid of his commander's habits. You've no right to strip men in the cold. You don't know Article 9 of the Criminal Code. This is Buinovsky. But they did have the right. They knew the code. You chum are the one who doesn't know it, thinks Shukov. You're not behaving like Soviet people, Bernovsky went on saying. You're not behaving like communists. 
Volkovoy had put up with the references to the criminal code, but this made him wince, and like black lightning, he flashed, 10 days in the cells. So they march into the cold, and we learn that Shukov has a wife at home. He is allowed to send two letters to her a year. His wife tells him how they get by by carpet painting and how he could do it when he gets out of the labour camp. But Shukov doesn't agree. Quote, he didn't want to turn carpet painter. For that, a man needed to be free and easy with people, to be brash, to know how to grease a palm or two. And although Shukov had trodden the earth for 40 years, though he'd lost half his teeth and his head was growing bald, he'd never either given or taken a bribe, nor had he learned to do so in camp. So this is the first time we get a physical description of Shukov. I imagined him as a much younger man, but here we have 40 years old. We learn that Shukov is a political prisoner under Article 58 for political crimes. It seems that his team leader, Tirin, recognises his honest qualities because he has been picked out specially by him to be in his team. Quote, Tirin would protect him with his own chest of steel. In return, Tirin had only to lift an eyebrow or beckon with a finger, and you ran and did what he wanted. You can cheat anyone you like in camp, but not your team leader. Then you'll live. Now we learn that Shukov's prison mate, Tirin, is well off. He gets two parcels a month, he smokes cigarettes and has an extra vest. They sit around arguing and chatting. Burnovsky, the ex-naval captain, complains that Fetiakov, or the jackal, will get a disease if he keeps picking up stray fag ends. Now Shukov is tasked by his team leader, that's Tirin, who remember is still a prisoner, to mix mortar in the machine room later. But first he asks him to fix the gaping holes in the window since a snowstorm is blowing in. He and his friend Kilgas use some roofing felt. They work out how they're going to sneak the roofing felt that they find past the parrots. They're the sentry guards at the sentry posts. We have this moment of almost farce, or at least very black humour, as Shukov and Kilgas try to hide the rolls from the parrots. Quote, they lugged it out. Now, how were they going to carry it? They'd be spotted from the watchtowers, but that didn't matter. The parrot's only concern was that the prisoners shouldn't escape. To carry the roll flatways would have been awkward, so they held it upright in between them and set off. From a distance, it would look as if there were three of them rather close to one another. Tirin, their group leader, fills out a work report. Quote, More depended on the work report than on the work itself. A clever team leader was one who concentrated on the work report. That was what kept the men fed. He had to prove that work which hadn't been done had been done. A clever team leader was one who concentrated on the work report. That was what kept the men fed. He had to prove that work which hadn't been done had been done to turn jobs that were rated low into ones that were rated high. For this, a team leader had to have his head screwed on and to be on the right side of the checkers. Their palms had to be greased too. But who benefited then from all these work reports? Let's be clear about it, the camp. The camp got thousands of extra rubles from the building organisation and so could give higher bonuses to its guard lieutenants. For example, to Volkovoy for using his whip. And you, you got an extra 200 grams of bread for your supper. A couple of hundred grams ruled your life. Corruption and bureaucracy rules this gulag. Now we learn that Shukov had a son that died young and he has two grown-up daughters. 
He takes the young Gopchik under his wing. Now Gopchik is only 16 years old. They are trying to build a wall and Shukov looks up at the sun thinking it's almost lunch since it's at its zenith. But the captain says, quote, a new decree has been passed and now the sun stands highest at one. Who passed that decree? He responds with, Soviet power. The captain went out with a barrow. Anyway, Shukov wouldn't have agreed with him. Mean to say that even the sun in the heavens must kowtow to their decrees. Now, kowtowing or kowtowing, it's historically a kneel and touch the ground with the forehead in worship or submission as part of a Chinese custom. It means basically to act in an excessively subservient manner. She didn't have to kowtow to her boss, for example. Now, Soviet power is so strong that even the heavens bend to their demands. It reminds me of King Canute and the tide. He sat on his throne on a beach. He thought he had such power that the tide would stop before it reached his feet. Of course, it never did. Even royalty has to obey the laws of science. Now, the cold is appalling and they light a little stove, which is hardly much use against the weather. They have to lay bricks and mortar, and that involves painstakingly removing a layer of ice from the top of the old brickwork, which had never been finished. And then they discuss that Shukov will be released soon, and we find out why he is in the prison camp. Quote, According to his dossier, Ivan Denisovich Shukov had been sentenced for high treason. He had testified to it himself. Yes, he'd surrendered to the Germans with the intention of betraying his country, and he'd returned from captivity to carry out a mission for German intelligence. What sort of mission neither Shukov nor the interrogator could say, so it had been left at that, a mission. Shukov reckoned simply, if he didn't sign, he'd be shot. If he signed, he'd still get a chance to live, so he signed. But what really happened was this. In February 1942, their whole army was surrounded on the Northwest Front. No food was parachuted to them. There were no planes. Things got so bad that they were scraping the hooves of dead horses. The horn could be soaked in water and eaten. They had no ammunition left, so the Germans rounded them up in the forest, a few at a time. Shukov was in one of these groups and remained in German captivity for a day or two. Then five of them managed to escape. They stole through the forest and marshes again, and by a miracle reached their own lines. A Tommy gunner shot two of them on the spot. A third died of his wounds, but two got through. Had they been wiser, they'd have said they'd been wandering about the forest, and then nothing would have happened. But they told the truth. They said they were escaped POWs. POWs, you effers. If five of them had got through, their statement could have been found to tally, and they might have been believed, but with two it was hopeless. You put your heads together and cooked up that escape story, they were told. What a story of hunger, of fear, of survival, and after all that, to be banged up in jail. Now, there's talk of how there are far worse camps than this one, where you get 100 grams less bread up there in the northern camps. It is pointed out that squealers, who are informants, have had their throat cuts in the night. Shukov describes receiving lunch, which is porridge, not much else, quote, the steppe was barren and windswept with a dry wind in summer and a freezing one in winter. Nothing could ever grow in that steppe, less than nothing behind four barriers of barbed wire. Bread comes only from the bread cutter. Oats are threshed only in the storehouse. And however much blood you sweat at work, however much you grovel on your belly, you'll force no food out of that earth. You'll get no more than the damned authorities give you. Now, 
I wanted to find out more about the steppe. Basically, there's a large stretch of steppe across Europe, extending all the way across Russia. There's very few trees that grow there because it's semi-arid land, meaning they receive 25 to 50 centimeters, that's 10 to 20 inches of rain each year. This is enough rain to support short grasses, but not enough for tall grasses or trees to grow. Now, just a short excursion. This book is definitely making me think of food and how extraordinarily lucky I am to have food. Quote, Shukov ate his bread down to his very fingers, keeping only a little bit of bare crust, the half moon shaped top of the loaf, because no spoon is as good for scraping a bowl of porridge clean as a bread crust. He wrapped the crust in his cloth again and slipped inside his inside pocket for dinner, buttoned himself up against the cold and prepared for work. There I am chowing down plentiful bread and here is this man where bread is such a rare and precious luxury, savouring every mouthful. I truly feel grateful. Do you ever get that feeling when you're reading a book, when it starts making its presence felt in your day-to-day -day life? Continuing the narrative, the narrator thinks, quote, how often had Shukov in his youth fed oats to horses? Never had it occurred to him that there'd come a time when his whole soul would crave for a handful of them. It's almost as if this book is reading my very thoughts. Now, Shukov manages to deceive the cook into handing out two more bowls of porridge, of which he gets one, alongside Cesar, his teammate. They discuss Eisenstein, the famous film director, and a prisoner doesn't like his work. Quote, Geniuses don't adjust their interpretations to suit the taste of tyrants. And I wonder if the author counts himself in this group. He's certainly showing a very honest portrayal of the harsh realities of a labour camp. Shukov spies a piece of rusty blade in the snow. Quote, a short length of steel, a bit of a hacksaw blade. He could conceive of no immediate use for it, but then you can never tell what you might need in the future. So he picked it up and slipped it into his knee pocket. He'd hide it at the power station. Thrift was better than riches. Now, I really hope that it doesn't get found on him. Surely a hacksaw blade means you want to escape in some way. Fingers crossed for Shukov. So there ends the first half, up to page 72. Initial thoughts, well, it's an incredibly harsh portrayal of the cold and fierce hunger that the prisoners are faced working in. A labour camp seems like a miserable place. Every morsel of food is craved over. Every little item that can be found is used. That expression at the end of the first half, quote, thrift was better than riches. Just finding that little hacksaw blade makes Shukov a rich man in his eyes. It's such a world of poverty. So the pressing questions that I have are, will Shukov feel better? I really hope so. Will that hacksaw blade be discovered by the wolf? And will Shukov get into some terrible trouble for it? I really hope not. Will all the characters we've met so far, Gopchig, Aloysia, etc., stay safe for the remainder of the day? And how am I to end? I think it will just be the close of a very tough day, yet again with the implication that nothing changes. This will go on day in and day out with no change. Plot would do the book a disservice and lessen it. It would render the book less powerful. It would imply change and not the monotonous daily trudge repetitive prison life. So first half ideas. The idea that things, although terrible, could be worse. I think this is really interesting. And the narrator doesn't overblow the reader with the tragedy of Shukov's 
awful situation. It's not all doom and gloom. I was really expecting it to be just the worst of the worst. At the beginning of the novel, Shukov gets up early. Quote, for the next 90 minutes belong to him. Shukov looked hopefully out of the corner of an eye at the milk white tube. If it has shown minus 41, they ought not to be sent out to work. But today it was nowhere near minus 41. It's not as cold as 41. In fact, no way near 41. Any other narrator might describe the worst of all possible situations. And when he does go to work for the Tartar, he feels relief. The narrator says, quote, and now that he'd been given work to do, Shukov's aches and pains seem to have gone. Things are really bad for Shukov, but not that bad. If it really was the worst of all possible situations with no hope whatever, would it be just too awful for the reader? Is this why it's not the very worst of the worst? Here's another example. Volkovoy used to carry a whip of which he would lash out at prisoners and draw blood. Quote, now for some reason, Volkovoy had stopped carrying his whip. Again, we're not seeing the absolute worst. It would be too alienating for the reader otherwise, or perhaps unbelievable. Now there's talk of how there are far worse camps than this one where you get 100 grams less bread up there in the northern camps. And remember at lunch, Shukov remarks, quote, the main thing today was that the porridge was good. Oatmeal porridge, the best sort. It wasn't often they had it. More often they got magara twice a day, a bran mash. But oatmeal is filling, it's good. Again, this is the best outcome in a bad situation. Could be argued that if this was a point the author was truly trying to make, he would have set the novel in the summer months when life for the prisoner would have been much easier. But he's got this balance just right, I think. It's harsh, but it's not too harsh, which would be a tragedy. You're not turned off as a reader. There's sparkling energy coming from Shukov's upbeat demeanor in these harsh conditions. What do you think? Am I right in thinking that? What do you think about this not being quite the worst of possible situations? I'd like to know your opinions. Now, I thought the prison breakfast was a very interesting idea. What a vivid description. Listen to this. Quote, the skilly was the same every day. Its composition depended on the kind of vegetable provided that winter. Nothing but salted carrots last year, which meant that from September to June, the skilly was plain carrot. This year, it was black cabbage. The most nourishing time of the year was June. Then all vegetables came to an end and were replaced by groats. The worst time was July. Then they shredded nettles into the pot. The little fish were more bone than flesh. The flesh had been boiled off the bone and had disintegrated, leaving a few remnants on head and tail. Without neglecting a single fish scale or particle of flesh on the brittle skeleton, Shukov went on champing his teeth and sucking the bones, spitting the remains on the table. He ate everything. The gills, the tail, the eyes when they were still in their sockets, but not when they had been boiled out and floated in the bowl separately. Great fish eyes. Not then. The others laughed at him for that. This morning, Shukov economised. As he hadn't returned to the hut, he hadn't drawn his rations, so he ate his breakfast without bread. He'd eat the bread later. Might be even better that way. After the skilly, there was Magara porridge. It had grown cold too and had set into a solid lump. Shukov broke it up into pieces. It wasn't only that the porridge was cold, it was tasteless when hot and left you no sense of having filled your belly. Just grass, except that it was yellow and looked like millet. They got the idea of serving it instead of cereals from the Chinese. It was said when boiled, a bowl full of it weighed nearly a pound. Not much of a porridge, but that was what it passed for. What a vivid description on breakfast. I tell you, I feel so happy that I 
have a nice breakfast. Again, the terrible conditions of the book beautifully described. Listen to Shukov when he talks about the march to the power station that he's working on with his team. Quote, out beyond the count boundary, the intense cold accompanied by a headwind stung even Shukov's face, which was used to every kind of unpleasantness. Realising that he would have the wind in his face all the way to the power station, he decides to make use of his bit of rag to meet the contingency of a headwind. He, like many other prisoners, had got himself a cloth with a long tape at each end. The prisoners admitted that these helped a bit. Shukov covered his face up to the eyes, brought the tapes round below his ears and fastened the ends together at the back of his neck. Then he covered his nape with the flap of his hat and raised his coat collar. The next thing was to pull the front flap of the hat down onto his brow. Thus, in front, only his eyes remained unprotected. He fixed his coat tightly at the waist with the cord. Now everything was in order, except for his hands, which were already stiff with cold. His mittens were wretched. He rubbed them, he clapped them together, for he knew that in a moment he'd have to put them behind his back and keep them there for the entire march. The chief of the escort recited the morning prayer which every prisoner was heartily sick of. Attention prisoners, marching orders must be strictly obeyed. Keep to your ranks, no hurrying, keep a steady pace. No talking, keep your eyes fixed ahead and your hands behind your backs. A step to the right or left is considered an attempt to escape and the escort has orders to shoot without warning. Leading guards, quick march. The two guards in the lead of the escort must have set out along the road. The column heaved forward, shoulders swaying, and the escort some 20 paces to the right and left of the column, each man at a distance of 10 paces from the next. Tommy guns at the ready set off too. Grim and scary. If you falter, you're likely to be shot for trying to escape. He goes on. Quote, it hadn't snowed for a week and the road was worn hard and smooth. They skirted the camp and the wind caught their faces sideways. Hands clasped behind their backs, heads lowered. The column of prisoners moved on as low at a funeral. All you saw was the feet of two or three men ahead of you and the patch of trodden ground where your own feet were stepping. From time to time, one of the escorts would cry, U48, hands behind your back, or B502, keep up but they shouted less and less. The slashing wind made it difficult to see. The guards weren't allowed to tie cloth over their faces. Theirs was not much of a job either. There's that implied author's touch of humanity again. Theirs was not much of a job either. It was horrendous for everyone and the implied author is not afraid to admit it. Stalin's regime is destroying everyone, even the guards. But it's not just their bodies that are in prison, it's their thoughts. Listen to this, quote, the thoughts of a prisoner, they're not free either. They kept returning to the same things. A single idea keeps stirring. They feel that piece of bread in the mattress. Would he have any luck at the sick bay that evening? Would they put Burnovsky in the cells? And how did Cesar get his hands on that warm vest? There's another interesting idea about food poverty and hunger as we hear about Shukov nibbling at a ration of bread that he secretly put in his coat pocket. Now, remember earlier in the novel, he didn't want to eat all his breakfast because, quote, food gulped down is no food at all. It's wasted. It gives you no feeling of fullness. Well, now he's feeling famished. He's ill too. Listen to this. He's just arrived at his work placement, the power plant, and he's awaiting orders and has a moment's freedom. Quote, he laid his mittens on his knees, unbuttoned his coat, untied the tapes of his face cloth, stiff with cold, folded it several times over and put it away in his knee pocket. Then he reached for the hunk of bread, wrapped in a piece of clean cloth, 
and holding the cloth at chest level so that not a crumb should fall to the ground, began to nibble and chew at the bread. The bread, which he had carried under two garments, had been warmed by his body. The frost hadn't caught it at all. More than once during his life in the camps, Shukov had recalled the way they used to eat in his village. Whole saucepans of potatoes, pots of porridge, and in the early days, big chunks of meat and milk enough to split their guts. That wasn't the way to eat. He learned in camp. You had to eat with all your mind on the food, like now, nibbling the bread bit by bit, working the crumbs up into a paste with your tongue and sucking it into your cheeks. And how good it tasted, that soggy black bread. What had he eaten for eight, no, more than eight years, next to nothing? But how much work had he done? Ah. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is quite a static plot. Not much of excitement happens. We just follow the path of Shukov. He cannot make any decisions apart from the little ones of stealing a hacksaw blade or taking a piece of bread. His day is pretty predestined. And so the idea of a plot where a character has to make decisions that will change his outcome is pretty much redundant in this novel. About the most exciting thing Shukov has done is hide bread in his mattress. I, the reader, feel imprisoned in this drudgery alongside Shukov. That's not to say that the narrative and details aren't illuminating, but it's like having a static photograph described in all its detail rather than the film of a train moving through countryside with ever-changing landscape. Do you get that feeling too? Do comment below and let me know. There is drama in the very smallest of things like stealing two extra bowls of porridge. There's a three-page setup as if Solzhenitsyn is describing a complex crime scene. I really enjoyed this first half and I'm really looking forward to finishing off and then discussing it in the next podcast. Now, I'd like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Pedro Paramo, by Juan Rolfo. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. I also listened to a really interesting podcast about the novel, episode 32 of Sherd's podcast. If you don't already know this podcast, I urge you to seek it out. Sam makes a really interesting point about how the form of the novel in terms of its narrative voice follows the function of the book to present death in all its manifestations. He says, quote, Initially in the text, there is a present tense narration by the main protagonist, and then these voices in the past tense recall their own lives and histories within the town. Eventually, these two currents become almost the same thing, and Juan Preciado is subsumed into that limbo state, physically dying, but also becoming one of those voices. So the novel loses its present tense. Death subsumes everything. And Lark Bonobi on Goodreads commented, quote, I'm feeling much like I felt at the end of 100 Years of Solitude. Gabriel García Márquez cited this novel as the most important influence on his own writing, so I guess my reaction is not surprising. As I read along, one breathtakingly imaginative sentence after another, I kept thinking, wow, wow, wow. But then my breath had been taken away so consistently that I discovered I was fatigued and I had totally lost track of myself because there are so many threads to this story and they aren't really woven together so much as they are thrown down along a path into the woods and the path keeps growing more and more tangled and overgrown and then it stops and here you are in the middle of the woods with no way out. I really like that analogy of the woods, <laughs> no way out. I completely understand that comment. It does feel very fragmentary. 
Edward on Goodreads said, quote, Pedro Parama is filled with beauty and sadness, told in fragments. The novel constantly shifts perspectives, blending past and future, living and dead in chaotic, unpredictable ways. This makes the narrative challenging to follow, but creates a chilling, dreamlike atmosphere and a kind of extra-temporal unification of cause and effect. There is an implied tragedy at the heart of the novel, the nature of which is gradually revealed, and never completely. Because of its disconnected and cryptic structure, and perhaps also my own cultural distance, I felt quite detached from the narrative. This novel would benefit from multiple readings, though I suspect that even with close study, it will never fully relinquish its mystery and ambiguity. Thank you so much for sharing those comments on Pedro Paramo. It's a really fantastic book, I thought. And thanks very much for listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages, which you haven't got around to reading, and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich in two weeks, that's the 24th of February. March is two episodes will be all about The House of Spirits by Isabel Allende, translated by Magda Bogan. It is about 500 pages, but March is quite a long month, so shouldn't be a problem. So get this one out the ready if you want to join me in reading that in March. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe, or give it five stars on your episode app, or leave a comment, even better. Thank you very much. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich in two weeks. See you then.